0: Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish.
1: Here to to chat about many of these historical landmark cases with us is Mark, uh, advocate Mark Oppenheimer, who has created a fantastic podcast that goes behind the scenes of the most important cases in South Africa. Mark has interviewed uh, judges and advocates who were involved in these cases, and the uh, podcast series showcases the early days of the Concord and the big figures involved therein. But on on that note, before we get into that conversation with, with Mark, and it promises to be a fantastic conversation.
0: You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson. Because democracy doesn't just happen.
1: Welcome back to 101.9, Kai FM. And today we're taking a break from Interrogation FM, where we interviewed and interrogated a whole lot of uh, political parties and candidates around their manifestos and and the election promises. If you missed that, make sure to catch up with the podcast, which are available on Spotify and on our website at com. But today, as I said, we're taking a slight diversion, and we're going into a – let's investigate – What's actually happening in the Constitutional Court and what has happened, and why it has come about, and in on the chat with us we have Mar- Advocate Mark Oppenheimer, a well-known Constitutional Court advocate. Welcome, Mark. I trust you're having a great day.
0: Yes, excellent. Thanks for having me on.
1: Fantastic, Mark. Fantastic. What have you been up to lately? We haven't seen or heard from you in ages.
0: Yes, I've been keeping quite busy, so I've had a few different projects on the go, some of which has been litigating in the Constitutional courts in two big election cases. So, the IEC had attempted to postpone these forthcoming elections, and I acted for the Institute for Race Relations, and we resisted that, and the elections ultimately are being held. And I, I've also started this new show, which is called Constitutional Landmarks. So, it's something that I've been working on for quite a few years, basically tracking down the advocates and the judges who are involved in these massive decisions. So cases around the death penalty, about the provision of Nevarapine to treat HIV-AIDS, gay marriage. And then the first episode is on the Nkandla case and on the other litigation concerning Jacob Zuma, his contempt litigation. And so what I've tried to do is have these eyewitness accounts where you can hear from the horse's mouth what happened in that litigation. And part of this is because I think the court has... Become very prominent in the last couple of years. I think we all recognise how much of an important role it has to play in shaping our democracy.
1: With without a doubt, and it certainly does play an incredibly important role, far more important than than most people are actually aware of. Now, you you are a a well-seasoned constitutional advocate as as such, and. Tell us a bit about the, the history of the Constitutional Court. I, I briefly touched on it in in the intro to to the show. However, it's just from what I've gathered from data. I'd love to hear an, an insiders and someone who's involved in it on a day-to-day basis what their feeling and and personal experience is is in the Constitutional Court.
0: Yeah, so the courts change quite a lot over time. Uh, we have different hierarchies of courts in South Africa. So you have magistrates' courts. High courts and the Supreme Court of Appeal. And the original idea was that the Supreme Court of Appeal would be the final court for all matters, barring constitutional matters. And the constitutional court would be in exclusively with that. Um, and, you know, with the creation of the constitution and bear in mind, we must remember that there were really two constitutions. So you had the interim constitution and then only in 1996 did you have the final constitution and that court had to determine whether the final constitution was itself constitutional. So you had these 36 constitutional principles uh, which were used to determine whether that final text would be compliant. And the constitution itself, and it's a funny thing, I think in some ways – As lawyers, we think about it as almost a religious text, you know, one that's handed down from uh, our forefathers and our foremothers, (laughs) like the Torah from Mount Sinai. But really, what it is, is a document that came about through negotiation. So you had different um, political parties contesting over, you know, what would be in the Bill of Rights and what the new structure of, you know, South Africa's law would be. And what's interesting about this is that it in the CODESA process, wasn't quite known what levels of support these different political parties would get. So in some senses, they had to create law assuming that their worst enemy would be the one wielding it. And so what you have is a lot of checks on government power, but also some obligations on government to provide um, certain kinds of resources like um, health care and housing and things like that. Um, so there's... The Constitution is uh, an interesting document in that it's very clearly written. Um, If you compare it to the American Constitution... There is so much debate as to what the meaning of those words are. Um, There's this famous quote from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of the great justices of the Supreme Court Court in America. When uh, Egypt was going through its transition and were looking for a constitution, she said, you should model your constitution on South Africa's, not America's. Um, What they've had to do is sort of explicate through a kind of constitutional law common a constitutional common law process. What's actually meant by their text? Ours is a bit easier to understand, although we do fight over what what is meant by equality, what is meant by dignity, how important is freedom, how do we balance these different rights?
1: Absolutely, I, I think that is always always open for debate, and the meaning of of, of those terms definitely does need to change over time as as we become uh, further experienced within within our within our democracy and understand. The challenges faced by such a diverse culture, as well, we have to re-relook at um, certain aspects of of their constitution. And what a lot of people don't know is that the constitution has been actually altered over over the past, um, well, since nineteen ninety six. In fact, we we currently seeing the Constitution Eighteenth Amendment Bill, which is, as we know, around expropriation without without compensation. What are what are the dangers of of changing or altering a constitution? Is it as, as clear-cut as, as it's made out to be?
0: Yes, I think the first thing to recognize is to look at the content of those 17 amendments. So first of all, none of them were to the Bill of Rights. Um, a few of them were reversed. So they would have to do with things like floor crossing and then floor crossing was removed. Or they would have to do with um, provincial boundaries um, or the renaming of, um, you know, the structure of the courts so most of those amendments were rather banal um, or are no longer in effect so the 18th constitutional amendment um, is basically south africa's quickest path to national suicide um, if we annihilate our property rights and allow the state to confiscate people's property and pay them nothing um, you know we are in for a massive hiding um, and you know it's not very hard to sort of see the consequences of this so there are two countries that have experimented with this dangerous notion. The first is um, a couple of hours' drive away from South Africa. So if you want to go and visit Zimbabwe and see what what happened after they started confiscating land and paying people nothing, you can see the 90% unemployment, you can see the 18 hours a day of load shedding, uh, you can see the starvation and the suffering and the political discontent. Um, otherwise, you can take a trip to Venezuela where you can uh, see people on the Maduro diet where they've lost 25 kilos, where two and a half million people have fled the country uh, as refugees to try and you know find a place where they can build their own lives. Um, what's amazing to me is some of the discussion on the topic and how disingenuous it is. So first of all, people say, well, all states you know have expropriation policies, and that's true. Um, you know, it's often going to be the case that a government is going to need to acquire land for some public project, something like the high train, and that there isn't a willing seller. And so the state will expropriate that property. But what they don't say is that in all of those countries around the world, people are paid compensation. The international law standard is that you must have prompt and adequate compensation. Our constitution currently provides for that. It gives you five factors that must be taken into account. So you start with the market value, and then you can look at what the property is being used for, whether there was a state subsidy, um, all these other factors to determine what just and equitable compensation will be. Now, why it's important to have property rights is that it's not just those who have their property confiscated from them that are affected. It's all the future deals that will be affected. Why would anyone invest in a country if they don't think that uh, their investment will pay off, if they think it will be taken from them through force? Um, so, yes, it's something that should be uh, discarded as soon as we can. I, I got a reminder that three years ago to the day, I was in Parliament doing a presentation on this topic. Um mm-hmm. And it's a sad thing that this is still with us. Um, what's interesting is that the Minister of Justice, Ronald Lamola, has acknowledged that uh, custodianship, the idea that the state would sort of be the custodian of land, is an anti-black policy and one that will uh, quickly get us to um, the suffering that you find in Venezuela. So that's from the Minister of Justice. Um, so if, if the matter is taken to a vote, uh, one hopes that uh, it doesn't achieve um, the sufficient number of votes.
1: That's that's a very interesting uh, development there, especially uh, since the F.F. have been pushing for for state custodianship, and obviously then uh, everyone will be the state will own everything, and you'll be leasing property from from the land if if you of course uh, qualify for for that, and that's that's a dangerous time as as we all know the the threat the threat of that is is immense, especially to our economy, which will no doubt see a lot of. Uh, disinvestment in 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 South Africa. So, yeah, we hope that that process will be tied up. And I get the feeling, uh, to be honest, because we've also been involved in it right right from the beginning, is that it the can just seems to be kick being kicked down the road as as we go from from one department to another, from one uh, head of the committee to another, from one uh, parliament to to another, and maybe that's a good thing. We <laughs> will never see the end of this uh, or it will never actually be, be brought in. Who knows? We can only only hope for the best. But I mean, oh. A
0: very simple solution to my mind is that if you're a member of Parliament and you intend on voting for this, the first thing that you should do is that you should surrender all of your private property to the state and say, <laughs> you shall be the custodian of my assets um, and enter into an arrangement where the state will protect all of your private property. It will no longer be yours. And if you're comfortable doing that, if you are comfortable giving the state that power of what was formerly your property, then go ahead and vote for it. But no sane individual would ever do that. They just think it'll happen to other people. Yeah. So people say, oh, you know what, those farmers out in the hinterland, I don't mind if the state takes their stuff. They'll never take my stuff. Um, but of course, if you look at the wording of the of the proposed amendment, it talks about all land and the improvements thereon. That means your house. Um, that's not just farmland. That's everyone's property. That's black people and white people. Um, so I think thinking about it sensibly and realizing that the enormous danger to our, you know, the future of the country rests on this. If it does pass, there will be uh, litigation that will stretch on for years, uh, challenging it, um, because it strikes me as the kind of amendment that itself would be unconstitutional.
1: Definitely. And I think it will, without a doubt, be challenged on, from many different, many different fronts. And I, I love your proposal of, of you, you go first, politicians. And because it's a well-known fact that many of our top politicians do own extensive farmland and game reserves and so on. So be a great challenge. Put, put, put their money where their mouth is. I think that is the way, what should definitely happen. <laughs> well done, Mark. But Mark, um, this, as, as you say, will be a case that goes on forever. and No doubt will be one of the many landmark cases or added to that long list of, of landmark cases. And I know you've been, uh, with your, your new podcast series, you've been investigating and chatting to the uh, people and advocates and judges that were involved in the many landmark cases that have happened since since the, the early 90s. Do you want to give us a bit of insight into uh, some of the great events or notable moments that that have happened during those interviews
0: yes so one of the the early episodes that i've released is on the death penalty and this was a it's the first case the constitutional court heard and you know very interesting moment in south africa because we'd had a death penalty since 1960 just under 3,000 people had been executed by the states up until the moratorium had been declared in about 89 and then there was this question as to well do we keep a death penalty or not? And the politicians thought this is a hot potato that we don't really want to deal with and um, we're quite happy for the Constitutional Court to deal with it. So I got to speak to Judge Johan Crickler um, and Justice Yvonne Mahoral. And Justice Crickler had been a High Court judge um, and had sentenced people to death um, and in the interview said those people deserve to die. When I asked him about um, whether he was concerned that innocent people would be put to death. He said, Mark, I challenge you to give me one case, one example of an innocent person who was put to death by the Safran government. He said that we were not um, Georgia in the 1960s where you had hanging juries. Um, but ultimately, you know, he, he, along with all the other judges of the constitutional court, held that we could no longer have a death penalty um, because of the constitution. And his argument was once we got a right to life, It became illegal to put people to death. And when I spoke to Justice Makoro, um, at the time, one of the values that was in the constitution was this value of Ubuntu. It's not in the final constitution and this idea that we are people through other people. And she talked about, you know, when we think about these deterrent arguments, the idea that, well, if we have a death penalty, it'll deter others from committing crimes. You know, she said that is to use people as a means only. For some future benefits, and that is to uh, intrude on their on their humanity, and that's the kind of language that you'd find in Immanuel Kant as well. It's interesting to sort of see that connection with with Ubuntu. Um, you had a variety of different kinds of reasons for why the death penalty would be unconstitutional: the dignity arguments, the other kinds are around equality, the notion that if you um, were a poor person, um, you were much less likely to be able to get decent legal representation, although the bar would send people, you know, to act in these pro-deo cases, but often those people were first-year advocates, um, and whereas if you were wealthier, you might have had a better a better go at it and, you know, gotten some other different kind of sentence. Um, there's also this interesting debate that arose with, so that I interviewed um, um, Gilbert Marcus and Vimtrengov, um, who are widely regarded as... The greatest constitutional advocates the country's ever seen, and they had acted for those that were facing, facing death in that case. Um, and we talked about the cruelty of the death penalty. Um, and the idea that, you know, someone may deserve to die because of what they've done. You can imagine someone who, who kills someone in a particularly cruel way. Um, but that states ought to, elevate themselves above that to say that we will not sink to your level we will not do the barbarous thing that you have done so very interesting sort of moral discussion and looking at these different kinds of moral principles and then also looking at the constitution itself and what's so wonderful about making the show is being able to kind of peer behind the scenes so normally the only access that that people have, um, to the court's decisions are through its judgments. So hearing about, you know, the internal discussions, the way arguments were set up, the way research was done, absolutely fascinating. Um, I also have an episode that'll be coming out that looks at the personal lives of, of the judges. Um, and so that episode will feature Yvonne Macoro and Justice Albie Sachs. And Albie plays quite a dominant role in the series and that episodes. And there is a moment where, um, Yvonne Macoro just, um, Embraced me and and cried um, and sort of talked about just what a wonderful opportunity this was to reflect on on her career as a judge and on her on her prior history. There's this um, moment where um, she was she was arrested for being engaged in an anti-apartheid protest, um, and um, her her lawyer um, at the time said to her, you know, um, well she said to her lawyer, you know, South Africa needs more people like you. And he replied, uh, it needs more women like you and it changed her career. So she was studying nursing at the time and she decided to become a lawyer. Um her her lawyer was Robert Sabukwe. Um and so this had this huge impact on her, and really had a huge impact on South Africa's history. If you think about these small incidences, um, and so Yvonne Meckhorst wrote the first free speech judgment in this matter called Case, and the principles that are in that judgment have had ramifications, you know, for the next twenty-five years in terms of how we develop our free speech law and how we work out which speech is protected and which speech, you know, um, isn't protected.
1: Oh, that's amazing. It's just, it, and it's these kind of intimate stories which I think. Uh, everyone should, should be exposed to intimate stories are hold, hold all the emotion. And although a, a court as such shouldn't be based on, on emotion, you can't help but uh, express emotion, especially in these, these important cases in, in the constitutional court. Now, uh, you mentioned something rather interesting there about, about, the, the death penalty and, um, it's about the, the right to life. So it actually conflicts with, with the constitution. And, you know, there's been so many calls from from the public to reinstate the death penalty and you know, perhaps they just don't get a get an understanding of it. And I think the public would see it as a as a deterrent to future crimes. However, there, there, there's massive debate around around that as well. Would, would it be a, a deterrent? Or, well, we discussed it
0: a little bit during the episode. And mm-hmm. the greatest example for why it's probably quite a poor deterrent, in uh, in England, um, they used to have the death penalty for a large number of petty offenses, um, one of which was pickpocketing. And they would have public hangings. Mm-hmm. And the, the place where you were most likely to be pickpocketed was at a public hanging. <laughs> so you can imagine a pickpocket seeing one of his former colleagues being hung and saying, Nobody's looking at me. I'm going to grab some wallets. That shows you how poor of a deterrent it really is. You know, the, the arguments for if you're concerned about crime in society is that you need to ensure that people think they're going to get caught. So really it's about effective policing, effective prosecution. There's so many other levers to pull before you get to the death penalty. But we tried to, um, I tried to ask very hard questions of people as well. So one of the, the cases that arise, there were these, um, two British citizens who joined ISIS. And they were executioners, and they executed people in the most cruel and abhorrent ways. They would put them into cages and then set the cages alight, and they would film this, or they would behead people. And they were then caught. And um, uh, Britain removed their status as citizens. And so the question was, who could exercise jurisdiction over them, because they have been captured by American troops, um, and the Americans still have the death penalty. And so the one of the questions was whether they could be released to Americans in the event that the Americans would would put them to death. Now there's no one more deserving of death than an executioner, especially one who does it in that manner and executed innocent people. And again there's this question about do you want to act like ISIS? Or do you think that's you know that's beyond the pale?
1: And that that is definitely there's a whole sort of ethical approach to that as as well as a, as well as a legal approach. But on on that note, as we know democracy isn't a passive exercise. It demands your participation.
0: You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson because democracy doesn't just happen.
1: And indeed, democracy doesn't just happen. It requires a lot of work and not only at elections, but during elections through your active participation in the government decision making processes, which is rather easy, easy to do. Today I'm chatting with, uh, Mark advocate, Mark Oppenheimer, and we're going into the unknown facts and absolutely fascinating stories about the constitutional court, its history, and where certain judges made groundbreaking decisions. Mark, uh, tell us a bit more about your, your series, or your podcast series. I see the first episode. Involved the Zuma, Zuma litigation. That must have been really interesting doing those interviews.
0: Yes, it was. So we, we cover three cases. So, um, I interviewed, um, Vermin Gilbert about the Nkundla case. And this was a real landmark case in South African history because you had the constitutional court holding a sitting president to account. So Jacob Zuma had spent 250 million rands of taxpayer money on this private palace and then try to tell the public that it was security features, you know, the sort of uh, chicken coop and uh, fire pool and things like that. <laughs> yeah, um, and it, it also opened up this question about what the role of the public protector was and how much um, power she would have. So Gilbert had acted for Tuli Manoncela, who was then the public protector, and um Vermont acted for the EFF, um, who at the time... Um, were quite hostile to Jacob Zuma and trying to pay back the money I think their stance has sort of uh, shifted as the tides change um, but you had this very historic judgement from Chief Justice McHwing who a lot of people I think were quite suspicious of because he'd been appointed by Jacob Zuma um, because he was quite young he'd only been at the court for two years when he was made Chief Justice and he has this line where he says that the sword of justice will chop off the rotting head of impunity so that, that escapade sort of is the core of the episode um, but I start with the current contempt litigation and so um, you, you hear from uh, acting Chief Justice Sisi um and talking about how Jacob Zuma had shown disdain for the court um, and why his refusal to cooperate amounted to contempt and why the correct thing to do was to sentence him to 15 months in jail and then I look at what happened there as well with that attempt to have the court reconsider its decision um, and so there's all this archival footage that's integrated into the show and these, you know, historic interviews with people. And you get to hear really interesting behind the scenes things. So, um, in the Nkandla case, for example, the presidency had taken this line up until the day, um, that, um, the public protector had no power to have a binding report, that it could only be a recommendation. And the problem with that, of course, is that it, made her office totally toothless. And so everyone else who'd had a negative finding against them just said, well, it's advisory, so you're not going to do anything. Um and so the concord entrenched her power. And of course, you know, I think people felt quite comfortable with Tudie Manoncela having that power and they now feel less comfortable with the current body protector having that power. So it's a discussion about thinking about governments as a as a as a structural thing as opposed to something just composed of individuals. And often the way that people are dealt with is we say well, we don't like this person, so we need to reduce that officer's power because there's the only way to do it, or we need to increase its power because we do like them, and this can have these ramifications for many years. I think we're seeing that with the court itself. So as the court has played this dominant role in checking the executive and holding Parliament to account, um, people have realized how important it is who staffs that court. And we now have a um, quite unusual circumstance where five vacancies are present at the court, um, and there are only six seats on the court, so almost half of it is empty, um, and there's been much um, fighting about who will be there. So judges are appointed by the Judicial Services Commission, and um, the last two rounds of interviews have um, been quite scandalous. So um, Judge um, David Unterhalter, who'd um, applied to become a a judge of the Constitutional Court, um, was not put onto the shortlist twice. And I think it's quite fair to say that one of the reasons um, is because he was involved with the Jewish Board of Deputies and that um, the, um, some of the commissioners at the JSC described this as an unconstitutional thing to have done because they see the the board as being a Zionist organization and they think that uh, being a Zionist is antithetical to the values of the Constitution. Now, of course... Uh, they are totally and utterly wrong. Our constitution, you know, provides for all sorts of political and religious beliefs and protection of those beliefs and that there's nothing wrong for advocating for the rights of Israel. Um, but there's this quite deep anti-Semitic line that's been taken. Um, and it's, it's been a very sad thing to see. Um, Kasach had challenged the initial finding, um, when Judge Tolta's name was left off the list. Re-interviews were done and the exact same list came back. Um, without any reasons for why. Um, so we may find ourselves in a situation where we don't have permanent judges on that court for a while if we have ongoing litigation. The other thing to remember is that Jews have played quite an important role in the constitutional court. So um, the former Chief Justice was Arthur Chaskilsen. Um L.B. Sachs is Jewish. A lot of the advocates who are involved in litigation there are Jewish. Um, and I think Jews have got this... Uh, important voice. Jews are often concerned about the nature of law, the nature of justice, um, and really have you know shaped South Africa in many positive ways.
1: Absolutely, and there, there's there's no doubt as to to the reasons why as as well. But that is it is a, a rather concerning uh, outcome there, and I do believe it does does need to be challenged. The constitutional courts of all courts should should be the one that holds a. A clean line that holds no opinion that is totally unbiased and uninfluenced by by politics and and so on. Yet it does not appear appear to be so. Um, I've got a whole lot of questions, Mark. But let's uh, let's have a quick break and then, please, listeners, stay stay with us as I'm going to push Mark a bit here. <laughs> after after the break, we'll be right back.
0: You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson. Because democracy doesn't just
1: happen. Welcome back to 101.9 IFM. I'm chatting today with advocate Mark Oppenheimer around the ins and outs and behind the scenes happening in the constitutional court, the cases involved and the history behind monumental decisions and, and landmark cases. Mark, earlier on, we, oh, you mentioned the, uh, some changes in laws that, that, that happened and, uh, rules that were made in, in, in the, in the concourse, which affected, affected those laws. I read, I read recently that in, uh, New Zealand there was a case where the, the public took the government to court on, on, on a constitutional matter and it was around lockdown regulations and, and so on. And they actually won. They actually won, which was, would have seen um, lesser restrictions on, on lockdowns in, in New Zealand. However, the politicians and lawmakers then immediately changed the law to undermine the, that legal outcome. How, how valid is, is the court process or the judiciary process, especially the constitutional court, when uh, lawmakers can do that and undermine legal outcomes?
0: yeah it's an interesting game that gets played um when a court strikes down a certain law as being unconstitutional um, and then Parliament tries to produce a new version of that law to be compliant um but can sometimes you know really reproduce an unconstitutional law um, What's interesting about litigation during the pandemic is I think there's been a lot of uncertainty about how long the pandemic will last and how long these supposedly interim infringements on people's rights will be necessary for. Um, I was involved in quite a lot of uh, anti-lockdown litigation um, for a number of organizations, um, including DRSA, who I think played an incredible role on this front. Um, and what was interesting was seeing how... When civil society got together to push back against some of these own restrictions or irrational restrictions um, that government backed down in quite a few instances, um, what became difficult was I think courts found themselves in an awkward position. They didn't quite know what to do um, and at times tend to uphold the government line because they were they were sort of concerned about you know, where is this going, how long will this last for. Um, it's quite difficult to litigate on those sorts of issues in the constitutional court because Approaching the court directly is something that's not easy. The court generally wants to hear matters after they've been considered by other courts. Um, and so the, the court hasn't dealt with a, a pandemic matter, barring the elections case. So there, um, the IC had approached the court for a postponement of the elections on the basis of the pandemic saying, we, we don't think we can have a free and fair election now in the pandemic. And the court said no um you know, the court sort of looked at the concerns of COVID and said you have a constitutional obligation to have this election and you are going to do it. And we're not going to grant you your postponement. So that gives an indicator um, of where the court's priorities are at. um but you can have this sort of circumventing that goes on. um one of the cases that um, I'll be dealing with in a future episode is on gay marriage. And this is a fascinating situation. So South Africa's got a constitution quite unique in that in our equality clause where it talks about the kinds of classes of people that you can't discriminate against, sexual orientation is included. Um, so other constitutions um, might mention, let's say, race and sex and ethnicity, uh, but ours really covers a broad range of things. And so a a number of cases were brought um, before um, the challenge to gay marriage was brought. So it really was a sort of 20-year um, process um first thing to recognize that in south africa um sodomy was still a crime um and so the first step was to remove that um and so there was a challenge in 1993 um which was successful then it was a matter of recognizing same-sex relationships for other reasons so allowing people to gain citizenship through partnerships um or allowing couples to adopt and eventually um in 2006 um this this case was brought um, allowing uh, two women to get married. And this, this is a really interesting moment. So um, L.B. Sachs wrote the majority judgment and Kate Regan wrote the minority judgment. And uh, Justice Regan's view is that the Constitution is very clear. You cannot discriminate on the grounds of sexual orientation. And one way to fix this problem is by... Reading into the Marriage Act, the term spouse. So instead of it being one man, one woman, you just use the gender neutral term spouse. And she said, we should do that immediately. Albie took the view that you'll have a legitimacy crisis on your hands, that really the court is not a legislator. Um, you know, it is the guardian of the constitution and it can tell, tell, um, you know, the legislature when it's done something unconstitutional, but really something like this should come from the legislature. So what they did was he said, you've got a year. Uh, to produce legislation which will allow for gay marriage, but it must go through the parliamentary steps. Yes. There must be public debates, you must produce your own law uh, and ultimately they did um, and There were interesting sort of things that happened at the time, so the ANC took the view that um, their parliamentarians would not have a a, a conscientious objector right.